Hello, everybody, and welcome to this, our 53rd episode of Rise Up, Ignite Your Life. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with former Idaho law enforcement officer and TikTok cop, Officer Nate, and he is now a published author, podcaster, speaker, social media expert, and probably most importantly, the father of one. Absolutely the most important, yes. <laughs> How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Krista? So good. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank I, you. I love bringing all different kinds of voices and all different kinds of stories and all different kinds of personalities. And you are known for your vivid personality. <laughs> vivid. That's a, that's a euphemism that I've, a very polite euphemism for my personality. <laughs> one that I haven't heard yet. So I always like to start the podcast going back a little bit into your childhood. Did you, what were you like as a kid? And did you always know that you wanted to be in a first responder role? You know, I was kind of your, your typical little boy. You know, I liked superheroes, you know, Superman, GI Joe, you know, Chuck Norris movies. Um, and when I was young, I remember talking to my mom and, and expressing my interest in becoming a police officer when I became an adult. And of course she tried her best to talk me out of it, you know, cause in the movies, you know, I didn't know anything about police work other than what I saw in the movies and the, the movies glamorize police work. You know, they make it look very exciting all the time and there's, you know, nothing ever boring happens. You don't have any downtime. You're always running and gunning and chasing down the bad guys. And so that's what I thought police work was going to be. And my mom assured me that that's not how it was, that police officers don't make a lot of money and that it's a dangerous job. And I was like, yeah, sure, mom, whatever. It's going to be great. Um, but uh, as I got older and got into junior high and high school, my aspirations of becoming a police officer sort of faded as my interests were drawn to other things as I got into college and, you know, got married. <clears throat> but when I, when I was married to my daughter's mother, uh, this was back in 2000 and 2005. Uh, we we just happened to to run into someone from my ex-wife's childhood who was then a police officer. And she was telling me about, you know, how much she loved her job and that they were hiring and that I should go apply. And again, I hadn't thought about being a police officer at this point for years and years. It never crossed my mind, you know, ever since I was a little kid. But at the time, the job that I was doing was just completely unfulfilling. I hated it. You know, I worked at a, at a tractor dealership, essentially, um, here in Idaho. And I was like, you know, maybe I should go apply for this, uh, for this police, for this uh, job at the Twin Falls Police Department. And I did. And <clears throat> what's funny is the first, the first portion of the hiring process is the physical fitness test. And they had us meet... Um, in, uh, in one of the rooms in the city council chambers to sort of brief us on what the test was going to be like. And I remember looking around the room at all of the other applicants and there are guys there from the army, the Navy, the Marine Corps. And I'm like, what am I doing here? There's no way that I can compete with it. Why would they choose me over someone with, you know, military training, military experience. But I went ahead with the, with the fitness test anyway, and stuck with it, had my interview. And then I just kept getting sort of you know, uh, pushed through to the, to the other parts of the hiring process until they eventually offered me a job. And literally like three days after they said you're hired, they sent me to the Academy. <laughs> so I had 
you know, zero time to prep for that. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was kind of it as far as, you know, my interest and my background and, in, in, uh, in law enforcement and, you know, the rest is, the rest is kind of history, but. They didn't want to let you run away. So they didn't give you any time to think about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> think about the mistake that I just made. Um, how old were you when you, when you joined the Academy? Let's see. Uh, that was in, oh, so my official hire date was in oh, January of 06. So, Oh gosh, you're going to make me do math now. So I'm 41 now. So in 06, I say, I think it was 25. I was 25 when I, when I joined the Twin Falls Police Department, they sent me to the Academy. The Academy here was at the time it was 10 weeks. And then we had a 14 week uh, field training program. Once you graduated the Academy. So when was your, when was your big realization that it was different than what you thought it was going to be? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you know, once you grow up a little bit and you start understanding the reality of things a little bit better, you know, I had um, my, my ex-wife's uncle was a police officer in Napa, Idaho. And when, when I told him that I was interested in applying for um, a police officer job, He's like, well, why don't I set you up with a ride along with one of my, he was like a Lieutenant at the time. He's like, let me set you up with a ride along with one of my guys so that you can kind of get a sense of what the job is like. And I went on a ride along, um, with two different officers that day. And I think for like eight hours, you know, almost a whole day. And I was fascinated, you know, even, even though I'm like, okay, so this is a little bit different than they portray in the movies, but like, this is, this seems like the type of work that I want to do. You know, it's, you, you you are free to some extent to sort of manage your own time, right? As long as there's not like a call for service that needs to be handled or, or something like that. But, you know, as far as patrolling, you know, making traffic stops and contacting people on the street, you know, whatever the case is, like I said, is, as long as calls for service aren't stacking up, you can kind of, you know, do whatever you want to do as long as it's, you know, part of your normal duties. So from that, and I was sold. I was hooked at that point when I went on that ride along. And I'm like, yeah, this is this is the job that I want to do for sure. So, but, um, you know, just the, the part that was where I sort of became disillusioned was the relationship between officers, like rank and file guys, right? Like officers and detectives and with their administrators, like chiefs and captains, mayors, city council members. That, to me, was... I was sort of blindsided by that because once you, what I learned is that once you reach a certain level in your, you know, promotional journey, let's call it after you become a Lieutenant, at least, you know, in the, in the department where I came from, your job becomes very political and you start to care more about what the public thinks than about what your employees think and about what they need and about how you can best help them do their jobs. So there's a disconnect that takes place once, you know, once these, supervisors and these administrators begin to promote above a certain echelon in the hierarchy, you know, of, of the leadership and police departments. And I've, I've found that to be pretty consistent with a lot of officers that I talk to from different agencies. They say the same thing. They're like, well, chiefs and captains are sort of, you know, they, they, they're sort of disconnected from the reality of police work now. You know, they're, they, they spend their days, you know, rubbing shoulders with mayors and city council members and, you know, other, influential affluential members of the community and again their jobs become more political than they do you know than they are about enforcing the law and so they sort of 
I don't know, they sort of leave everybody else behind in that, you know, in, in that respect. And it becomes very frustrating for officers who try to, I guess, sort of maintain, uh, you know, maintain that good working relationship with their supervisors and administrators because they see how they're being neglected, right? They see money being spent in places where it shouldn't be spent. And they see, you know, all of these, you know, all of these different places in the, in the workplace where money could be spent to make the workplace environment better, to make us more efficient while we're doing our jobs. But the money never goes to those places where it's needed, you know? Um, and so those, you know, those, those things build up and become very frustrating. But when you voice your concerns, it normally falls on deaf ears. And then, then when you become louder and vocalize your concerns a little bit more, then they're like, why is this guy making so much noise? You know, why is, why is he giving us such a hard time? And now you become sort of the, the wild card in their, in their opinion. And uh, it's, I mean, if you've watched one or two of my videos, you know that I'm not really the silent type. I'm not the type to keep my opinions to myself. And, you know, maybe that's a problem that I have. Maybe that's something that I need to work on. But even, you know, as a, as a detective in the, in the police department, where I worked, uh, you know, just as, as an example, um, sworn officers have access to to eyelets, which is the, the portal that's used when you look up someone's driver's license information, registration information, um, and things like that, NCIC, where you can look up warrants and criminal histories and that sort of thing. Um, now, patrolmen have access to those to, to those portals in their vehicles on their computers that they have in their vehicles. Well, the detectives didn't have access to those portals on their desktop computers, and I always wondered why. I'm like, why? Because every time I needed to run someone's information for a case, I would have to walk up to either dispatch or the records department and have them do it. And sometimes I would have to wait if they were busy, and it would take me, you know, an extra 10, 15 minutes sometimes. And to me, that was that just seemed unnecessary. I'm like, why can't we have why can't we have access to this on our computers when patrolmen have access to it? And the, the, the excuse that I got was, well, it's not secure. I'm like, what do you mean it's not secure? Nobody has access to my computer. And the only people that have access to the building are other sworn officers. So I don't understand. I mean, it's more secure than a patrolman's, you know, computer in his vehicle, in my opinion. So just things like that, that, you know, either redundancies or there's an inefficiency that I wanted to address. And the typical response I got was, well, this is how we always do it, you know, and they just didn't want to deal with it. And I'm sure you've heard that you know, um, in, in your experience along the way. But um, it just, that was, again, that, so, so going back, it was a very circuitous way of kind of explaining my disillusionment with the relationship between officers and administrators. There's a huge gap there. There's a huge dis disconnect where they're not really, they're very out of touch with, um, they become out of touch with, you know, the sort of the daily grind that police officers and detectives and, you know, other sworn um, staff members go through day to day. And they just sort of, it seems like this sort of stopped caring about that. So that was very frustrating. And you spend all of your days sitting there going, this could be so much easier. Why is this so, why is there so much resistance? Why is there yeah. so much frustration? Why do I have to do the, all of these extra steps? Yes. And 15 minutes doesn't sound like a lot until you add 15 minutes to every single time that you're trying to do something yeah. every single case and multiple times a day it yeah. adds up very quickly and that's and when you're looking at a stack of unsolved and you're looking at a bunch of files that haven't been taken care of and you're looking at a bunch of phone calls that haven't been made 
Mm -hmm. that's breaking your heart. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's causing that I can't do my job because you won't let me do my job. Right. Yeah. And when you have, you know, 20 active cases, you know, constantly, you know, as you, as you, as you close one case and another one comes, comes to your desk and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to figure out the information for, for suspects, where do they live? You know, they have a valid address, do they have a warrant, you know, valid license, things like that. And you have to, like you said, 15 minutes doesn't seem like a lot, but if you're doing that for five to 10 of the active cases that you have, that time adds up to hours that you're just sort of wasting standing there waiting for someone to do what you know you can do because in our in our department where i worked we you start in patrol right that's where you start and then from there you can you can move on to narcotics or detectives or traffic or or you know whatever so in my head i'm thinking okay when i was a patrolman now detectives was deemed as sort of a promotion right that's how it was sort of viewed so what you're telling me is that I can be a patrolman and have access to these things, but as soon as I'm promoted to detective, I no longer get access to the things that I had access to before. That makes so much sense. You know, but again, you, you try and explain that to, to an administrator or a supervisor, and basically what it is, they just don't want to deal with it, right? They don't want to go through the trouble of giving us access, and because it's a, probably a process in order to make that happen, and you would have to make sure that everybody had their own unique login information so that they could lock their computers but I mean, it's uh, to me, it was worth the time, you know, to save because, again, they they harped on us about, you know, make, being efficient with how we investigated our cases and make sure that we went, once we got them, we could you know, either solve them or close them in a timely manner. Well, this this again, this would save me hours if this was something that they could, you know, that they could accommodate. But they, you know, they just didn't want to deal with it. So, so yeah, that was, that was sort of my, my, uh, I guess my, my rude awakening into the reality of, of police work is that, and I've experienced this, you know, over the last, um, you know, the last year, well, last year I experienced it myself, but I've been seeing it in the media for the past couple of years. And so administrators are, are really willing to throw their guys, their rank and file guys under the bus. If it means avoiding, media attention, if it means avoiding, you know, some sort of, you know, PR disaster, if it means saving their own job, right? Um, or if it means, you know, avoiding a phone call from from the mayor who might be angry about about something. They're they're always willing to throw throw you because, you know, they, they say it runs downhill, right? They're always willing to throw the guy at the bottom under the bus. And I just don't I don't agree with that. I think it's a very poor way of of treating the, the guys who actually the guys and girls who go out and put their lives on the line who you know run towards the danger and make tremendous sacrifices in order to be there d- during their shifts for 12 hours you know sacrificing time with their family members sacrificing you know birthdays weddings graduations you know you know you know what police officers sacrifice and what kind of sacrifices they make and that's never acknowledged it i mean very rarely is it is it acknowledged by uh you know, by the higher ups. And, and again, if you get into trouble, quote unquote, right, if you, if you're involved in a critical incident, or, you know, a member of the public uh, files a complaint, and that member of the public happens to know the mayor, or a city council member, suddenly your life is turned upside down in an internal investigation, and you have no clue whether or not you're going to have a job, you know, in the days and weeks ahead. And it's just, it's not fair. 
you know, it's not fair to those to those officers. It's not right to treat them that way. And that's what I think needs to change about police departments. Well, and I think we forget, too, that that particular problem, when it's at its worst, it's causing people to hesitate. It's causing officers to question taking force that they have to take mm -hmm. to protect themselves. I think it's causing those momentary, if I do this, all of this shit's going to hit me and I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to lose my job or they're going to put me in jail because... I can't make the choice to protect my life safely anymore. There's no, nobody has my back. Yeah. So if, if I hesitate, I die. Yeah. And that's, that's a really big issue. And we are seeing, I'm seeing ambushed officers almost daily come across uh, our request list for memorials for their families. So I mean, and I'm sure I'm not even seeing how many there actually are. So if I'm seeing it at least daily, then it's probably two or three times that out in the U.S. And that's that's a tremendous amount of loss. And, yeah. and I think part of that is their fear that, that their higher ups, their community, their department doesn't have their back, mm -hmm. that they, they can't act. They're not yeah. safe to act. Well, yeah, that's a very real fear. Can you still hear me? Uh, yes, but you froze. Yeah, I was just I was just looking at that. I don't I don't know why I'm frozen and I don't know what to do to fix it. <laughs> um, I don't know if you need to pull me out of the stream and put me back in or. Yeah, let's give that up. If that works. <laughs> mm. Uh oh. oh great. You can hear me, but can't see me, huh? <laughs> yep. Awesome. Let me see here. There you are. Switch to my... There. There we go. <laughs> and we have you back. All right. Technical difficulties resolved. Um, no, you're you're right. Uh, you know, and we saw that a lot during the, during the riots, you know, in the aftermath of the George Floyd incident, especially in Portland. At least that's the one I remember the most is because you had you had the city of Portland or the state assigning special prosecutors to prosecute officers who were trying to keep the riots under control. And, you know, I can't, I've never had to deal with a riot. I mean, I've had training in how to, you know, in riot control, but it gets violent just because it's a riot. And so officers are going to have to use force. I mean, there's just no way that they're going to be able to control a violent rioting crowd of people without using force. Yeah, violence is met with violence in, in use of force in use of force situations. It's just the reality of it. But you had you had so many people from the left screaming about police brutality when they're dealing with these rioters. And, you know, they were calling them peaceful protesters at the time. <laughs> and, and 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 so they're they're assigning special prosecutors in order to prosecute these officers for their justified use of force during these riots. And in the aftermath of that, you saw a large part of the Portland police department just do a, make a mass exodus. They're right. like, well, if we're going to get prosecuted for actually doing our jobs and defending ourselves, but also defending our city and all these federal buildings that they're, that they're, you know, destroying, then why would we want to, why would we want to come to work? And so, and you saw that all over the nation officers were like, Nope, it's not worth it. It's, it's already almost not worth it for them. I mean, they get paid pennies, you know, again, and we've already talked about a lot of the sacrifices that they have to make, 
And now you add on top of that that they're going to be prosecuted and, and possibly imprisoned um, because they were defending themselves and or using even a low-level use of force that was justified in the eyes of anybody who can look at those situation, situations objectively, you know, use of force experts, even if they were within their department's policy and procedure. But you still see officers like Officer Degas in, um, in uh, San Diego County or in La Mesa, uh, La Mesa City PD. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with his case, but he was, uh, you know, he was working on the, uh, the transit uh the transit property, like the, the train station. It was kind of a special assignment, um, if, if I recall correctly. And on the on the uh, transit property, you're not allowed to smoke or vape. Well, he sees a guy that he thinks is is vaping because he's he wasn't vaping, but he was holding his phone like this, and it kind of looked like he was he was, you know, vaping. So Officer Degas approaches him and goes to talk to him. And this this guy, he's a black guy. His name's Amari Johnson. He's he's immediately confrontational, immediately becomes agitated and, you know, refuses to give up ID, you know, all this stuff, just being, just being, just resisting and obstructing. And Officer Degas, and he jumps up and gets in Officer Degas's face, and Officer Degas pushes him back down onto the bench that he was sitting on, and then eventually puts him in handcuffs to take him to jail. He was later released with a misdemeanor citation, didn't actually go to jail. But in the aftermath of that incident, BLM burned the city to the ground, found out where this officer and his wife lived, um, posted up outside their house, harassing them and stalking them and just making life a living hell. And then the uh, the city of La Mesa, or maybe it was San Diego County, um, he was found to be in policy, right? He was found that, the, that his use of force was justified. But the, the DA in San Diego County, uh, Summer Steffen, she wanted she was she was trying to quell the BLM crowd, you know, and control the riots by by making Officer Degas the sacrificial lamb, so to speak. She she hired a private investigative firm, paid them like seventy thousand dollars to manufacture the outcome of the investigation that she wanted. And then ultimately what they came up with was that he falsified his police report. And so he was charged with that, had to go to court, had to, you know, had to hire attorneys and they, you know, they. They accumulated all of these legal fees, and he was eventually acquitted, thank God. But that's that's happening in you know several several states in our country where these prosecutors are going woke and prosecuting officers instead of prosecuting criminals. And so it's no wonder that that first off that current police officers are walking off the job, but they can't fill those spots with people who have any common sense, knowing that if they if they go out and they they sign up for this job, that there's a very likely possibility that they're going to be prosecuted when they thought that they were justified in using force. Yeah, I've been noticing the the numbers on officers graduating from academies is really, really low. And oh, when they say yeah. the number that are retiring and the number that are retiring, yeah, <laughs> retiring way early um, is, like one of the counties I was looking at in Florida was they had like 240 officers leaving and I think they had like 34 come in. Wow. They were just like, this is bad. This is really yeah. bad because at what point it does it pivot to where there just aren't enough officers? You yeah. know, I mean, obviously there's not already enough officers, but where does it pivot to the point where people realize there's not enough officers and then they start going, Oh my gosh, we need you. And then mm -hmm. it is too late because no one in their right mind will do it. 
well, you know, once you've crossed that line, you can't be trusted again. Because, you know, like I mentioned before, is, you know, once you once you promote above, you know, the, the position of lieutenant and you become a captain or a chief or a mayor or whatever, you become a politician, essentially. And politicians can't be trusted anyway, um, because most of them just they, you know, they make decisions based on whatever way the political winds are blowing. And, you know, I think that's all that's all this was at the time when they were prosecuting these officers. That was the political narrative at the time. It's like it's like, no, we're going to be soft on crime and hard on officers. And instead of prosecuting criminals like we should and keeping them locked up like we should, we're going to go after the good guys instead and see, you know, see if that helps our cause. And it's all about votes. You know, that's all it's about. It's about getting reelected. But yeah, I mean, how are you how are you going to expect people to to trust you? When they they have no recourse. I mean, some, we're, I mean, every once in a while, you know, an officer's rights are violated. But like in Idaho, Idaho's a right to work state. They can fire you, you know, without cause for any reason, and there's nothing you can do about it. So in similar states, you know, if you're if you're doing your job, you know, and you're doing it well, or even if you're just you know trying to you know fly under the radar and keep a low profile, and even just do the bare minimum you know, that's required of police officers, there's still a chance, you know, that you're going to get hung out to dry. How do you think all of this affects officer mental health and suicide? Well, I think it's huge. I think it has a huge impact. And I don't think, uh, I mean, there's definitely a stigma um, with police officers, you know, seeking counseling and seeking therapy. A lot of them will view it as, well, they'll, they'll, they believe that they'll be viewed as being weak, you know, as being unfit for the job if they, if they need that. But also it's, again, it goes back to the administration because this happened to me um, with the Twin Falls Police Department. I had to go on family medical leave for three months because, you know, I needed some mental health help and I got counseling for, I think six weeks or so, which helped me tremendously. And if, and, and I give officers this advice all the time. I'm like, don't wait until things boil over before you decide to get professional help, do it early so it's kind of like preventative maintenance for your vehicle. You know, you're changing the oil, checking, you know, uh, changing the tires, uh, filters and things like that to keep your car running. That's essentially what counseling is for police officers. You got to stay out ahead of it or else it'll catch up to you and it'll bite you hard. But the way administrators look at that is now you're a liability. You know, even if you are seeking counseling, once you show that you're human Right. And you can be affected by all of the vicarious trauma that you can, you experience daily. Now, suddenly you're a liability and they will they will figure out a way to get rid of you. Do you think that's still true? Well, I know it was true in my case. And I, I don't see I mean, you know, if they come right out and say, look, uh, we, we noticed we know you've been going to counseling and, you know, we know that you're having a hard time with, you know, depression or PTSD or whatever it is. And so we're going to let you go. Obviously, they can't do that legally. Right. There would be there would definitely be a lawsuit forthcoming if that were the case. But in my case, I mean, you know, I'll be I'll be completely transparent. When I came back from leave off of leave and had gotten counseling and everything and was feeling a ton better, I was ready to come back to work. Um, I had my attorney with me when we had sort of this uh, come back to work meeting, you know, with the city manager and the chief. And my attorney said, well, okay, so now, now what, what's the deal? Is Nate going to have a target on his back, you know, until you guys find a reason to fire him? And they're like, no, 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 no. We love Nate. He does good work. 
He's a great detective. He's been a great officer. We, we're glad that he's healthy. We want him back. And the only thing it took for them to fire me was a late report. Now, mm-hmm. late reports, late reports are ter- turned in all the time by officers, you know, and I, I can't think of one time during my tenure with the Twin Falls Police Department that there was another officer who was fired for turning in a, re- a report late, right? And this, this was a case, this was a, a report that it was just, I mean, it wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't going to turn into an investigation. It was just a, it was a report that was just going to be filed away. But they're like, oh, okay, we, now we have something for which we can fire him, you know, instead of the whole, oh, well, yeah, Nate, you know, he's unstable now because he had to get therapy. So it's no wonder to me that officers refuse to seek it out. And when they refuse to seek out therapy or counseling, they turn to drugs, they turn to alcohol and all sorts of other, you know, risky, risky behavior. And, and that's why suicide rates are through the roof with police officers. Do you feel like there's been any progress recently or are you feeling like it's, it's a problem that's not, you not know, really not addressed appropriately yet? I don't think, I, I don't, I, not that I know of, I, I, I haven't seen or heard of any progress being made in that area. You know, before my life did a complete 180 last year, um, one of my goals was to go to school to get either like a counseling degree or like a social work degree so that I could provide therapy for first responders. Because you see in these bigger agencies like LAPD, for example, you know, they have, they have psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, therapists who are actually on staff and their, their sole job is the mental health of, of the staff members that work in the department, you know, um, police officers, detectives, you name it. But midsize and, and lower size agencies don't have that luxury Um, but even if they, even if they don't have that, even if that, that resource, you know, appropriating funds can't be justified for that particular resource, at least they can have someone contracted with a police department so that, so that mental health resources are much more accessible than they are now. So with my experience, you know, we had EAP, the employee assistance program. And when they put me on leave, they handed me a pamphlet and said, good luck, call us when you're better. And I'm like, uh, okay. So, you know, I took the pamphlet and it was just like, it was a hard time for me. I was very depressed, um, you know, just struggling with a lot of things at work and in my personal life. And I thought they were going to, like, I thought they were just looking for a reason to fire me. And I thought that that was imminent, you know? And so I'm just sitting at home by myself looking at this pamphlet and I'm like, well, I guess I might as well call the number. I call the number and like this 18 year old kid answers the phone and he's yawning because I think I just woke him up from his nap and he's like, hello. And I'm like, is this the employee assistance program? He's like, yeah. I said, okay, um, I'm not quite sure how this works, but I'm looking for a counselor. And he's like, well, you just got to call around in your area and find one that accepts EAP assistance and then just go with them. (laughs) I'm like, this process could not be more humiliating. You know what I mean? But I did, I I followed through with it. You know, I found a clinic um, here locally that accepted the, the employee assistance program funding or financing. And that's when I started to get counseling. And again, I felt so much better, but there are officers who literally would have just given up when they were handed that pamphlet. It's like, what, it, what needs to happen is there needs to be somebody, if you're involved in a critical incident, or if you're struggling and your supervisor advisors and administrators know you're struggling, or if you make it known to them that like, Hey, I'm not doing so hot over here and I need some help. There should be somebody contracted 
a mental health professional that can show up, you know, within hours and have a sit down with you and talk about it and keep it completely confidential, right? No sharing it with the department, no sharing it with the chief. Nobody knows your business because that's the other thing is, you know, if you're, if you do a fit for duty evaluation, which I had to go through, I had to meet with a psychiatrist and do a fit for duty evaluation. All that information is handed over to my department. It's like, okay, so there's just zero privacy. Yeah. So they have to be trusted to keep your information confidential for one. Um, And that's, you know, that's a big step, um, you know, in going in that direction. But the access to that needs to, I mean, this person, whoever, this psychologist or whoever it is, should each officer should have the phone number for this person, right? So they can say, hey, I I would like to sit down and talk with you and like do a consult or do a session or, or something. And, you know, that stuff should be, I don't know, it should be subsidized in a way so that it doesn't cost the officers an arm and a leg or covered, you know, could be covered by their insurance or whatever, or, you know, have the department pay for it. Because we, I mean, you know, we pay city attorneys, we, you know, the city pays for city attorneys that are very expensive. And I don't think it's too much to ask to invest in, in someone who is an expert in mental health to take care of these officers and help them get through whatever they're struggling with mentally and emotionally, because usually it's a product of their day-to-day job. Yeah. Thank you for that. That was a huge confirmation that you just described the system that Battle to Be is actually trying to implement. We have uh, a modular training system that from hire to retire and beyond that we mm-hmm. want to bring into every department that addresses all of the information everyone needs ahead of time. Everyone needs to know what PTSD is, what the signs and symptoms are before mm-hmm. they take the job. They need yeah. to know what the risks they need to know about suicide, not for people out there, but for themselves. Mm-hmm. Everyone I've talked to says, oh, yeah, I had a little mental health training, but none of it had to do with me. None yeah. of it had to do with what I might experience. So, right. and a system of immediate debriefing and crisis intervention and all of that stuff in place way ahead of time and used in a way that is commonplace. Mm-hmm. So every day when you write your reports, you assess if it was how how high stress was the day to day and yeah. it's normal if you went out and three kids were killed yeah it's going to be a higher stress day than normal right right so it just kind of shows it gives administrators a way to tell who might be needing extra resources and those resources as you say are available to you guys you call when you want mm-hmm. completely confidential not accessible to the department. The department doesn't know when you're seeking resources. It's yeah. literally just numerical in the context of someone sought resources. This is how many people we served in your department, yeah. but never who is seeking right. counseling, who is seeking resources and just normal trainings with tools and resources for coping and resiliency and all of those things that people just aren't taught normally. Mm-hmm. I even tell you how many officers I've had who are right like 20 years in deep in post-traumatic stress and they've never been taught how to breathe yeah. to connect their their nervous system to do any of that regulation nobody right. ever taught them how to breathe or to ground or just really super simple things yeah. that, that you guys should have right out of the gate yeah. like children should be taught this stuff everyone should have this stuff on board so if yeah. we just make maintenance and protection 
of mental health normal, then we're going to have a lot less recovery of mm-hmm. mental health after the fact. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I, I think that's that's super important. And I think you'll see, you know, if we can if we can make that a part of police culture, I think you'll see a huge boost in not only morale, but in, uh, you know, people that actually want to come do the job, you know, because you mentioned that, you know, police police departments can't fill uh, can't fill empty positions. And I mean, you know, here in Twin Falls still, I'll run into an officer every now and then and like, yeah, we're down eight people and eight people in Twin Falls is a big deal um, because we're a midsize agency. We're a midsize city. And I, I think if if you 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 have some reassurance as an officer that like oh okay so this this is all going to be accessible it's going to be completely confidential um, yeah I think I can get on board with this but again it all comes down to trust you know police officers are inherently mistrusting anyway or distrusting and you know you've got and and see here's the thing too is that you're really you're going to have to fight I guarantee you when this kind of program is implemented in whatever agency, you'll probably have to fight a battle with the administrators because they're going to want access to records. They're going to want access to, you know, session notes. They're going to want access to how many times a certain police officer or detective has sought out mental health resources. They're going to believe that they're entitled to all of that. And my response is, fuck you. No, no, you're, you don't, ha- you don't get it. I don't care how, how much authority or power you think you have as a chief of police. If you really care about the mental health of your officers and you want them to go out there and be professional and be proficient and efficient in their job, then you will give them this. You will give them this program and you won't meddle in it. You won't try and stick your fingers in it and you won't try and get the information that they want to keep confidential. Well, I think there's, I think there's a court case there that's going to have to happen. I think it's going to have to be pushed to the point that the legal rights to medical privacy mm-hmm. are going to have to be put into place. We're going to have to make it a point that everyone's psychological medical records, unless they are a threat to themselves or a threat mm-hmm. to other people, is protected. We yes. have that legality in place already. Mm-hmm. Human- Police officers are human beings like everyone else. They have that right. They have that protection. So there is no administrative bypass to that. That is a universal legal protection. Yeah. We're allowing because the therapist works for the office, not for the individual. Mm -hmm. They're allowing that authority to be taken away from you guys. They're allowing that protection to be taken away. Yeah. But but that is a legal, legally protected right that I think that there will have to be, there's going to have to be some some fight yeah. to, to make that very clear. It's going to be there. I agree. It's, it's probably going to take a few lawsuits in order for that to sink in. Because again, it's just, it's just that mentality that you develop when you, you know, when you, when you rise up, you know, when you, when you climb the ladder in, uh, in, in law enforcement. You just get this sort of the sense of entitlement that, you know, I went through it, um, you know, with regards to my to my family medical leave. But also, you know, I've during my 12 years at the, at the department, I, you know, I was involved in nine internal investigations, only one of which was substantiated. And it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. It was like I went over my minutes on my department issued cell phone, you know, and I don't know why we didn't have unlimited minutes. But, you know, that was that was the one complaint or the one internal that was actually substantiated. And there were several others from, you know, 
frivolous complaints from citizens who were just, you know, upset with, you know, the way that I, you know, handled the case or, you know, with the, uh, um, with the disposition of the case. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I was pulled into an internal investigation and asked about my sex life, my private sex life when I was not on duty. And they believed that they were entitled to that information when I wasn't being paid by the city of Twin Falls and on my own time, me, you know, uh, fraternizing and associating with whoever I, I wanted to, you know, because I'm on my time again, not being paid by the city, but they believed that they were entitled to know who I was sleeping with, who was spending time at my house. And my attorney, he said, no, you don't, you don't, you don't get to ask that question. That is none of your business that the police department is not the morality police. You know, you're not, you're the, the only thing that pertains to this investigation is what detective Sylvester is doing while he's on duty. His, uh, his off duty time is none of your concern whatsoever. And it's not pertinent to this investigation. And they ordered me to answer the question lest I be terminated. And I had to, I mean, I had to answer the question per, you know, per our department policy. And, you know, this has been held up in court too, is that, you know, we, we don't have the fifth amendment rights like we do in criminal cases, you know, in, or that we do in criminal cases in, in administrative cases, we don't have the right to remain silent and to refuse to answer questions. Your department can fire you if you refuse to cooperate with an investigation. And that includes answering all of the questions. So I was forced to answer that question. And I'm like, this isn't right. You know, the, prying into my personal life. So it's just that, again, that mentality that sort of that, you know, God complex that, you know, I'm, I'm entitled, I'm, I'm a supervisor, I'm a chief, I'm a captain. I'm entitled to know what officer Nate is doing in his off duty time, just in case it might have some effect on the department somehow, you know, it's just, it's insane. That will go somewhere eventually, I'm sure. Maybe these systems need to be built outside of the department, but I'm not sure how that would look. You, know, you mean like, with like the mental health programs? and Yeah, then maybe it just literally would have to be outside of departmental reach. But I, I feel like there is some way to, I see your concern and I, I feel like there's a way to overcome that for sure. There, well, there. Yeah, I think there should be. And, you know, again, when when my goal was to, um, you know, go to school and get a degree so that I could provide therapy for first responders, my my plan, you know, sort of my my raw, you know, rough draft of a plan included going in and meeting with the heads of these agencies and saying, look, there's a there's a mental health crisis in law enforcement. Suicide rates are through the roof. And here are the reasons why. And I can help you. I can help you address these reasons and I can help keep your officers um, mentally and emotionally healthy so that they can continue to do the job. And this is what it's going to take, you know, and I think if, if an outside, an outside force, you know, comes in and makes some sort of proposal that the department can get on board with, I think that might, you know, that might get our foot in the door with that. Um, but yeah, who, who knows, but it, it, something does need to change in that regard. Well, you and I should stay in touch. <laughs> For sure. Let's make For this sure. happen. Let's make this happen. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm so I'm I was asked to speak in an event here locally. It's called the Southern Idaho Freedom Festival. And uh, that's going to be one of my topics that I cover. I've got 30 minutes to speak and I'm going to talk about, you know, mental health. 
with uh, with regards to police officers in particular. But I mean, all first responders, I mean, firemen, you know, paramedics, they see some of the same tragic, horrific stuff that we do. And, um, you know, and they're paid by they're paid by the city. They're you know, they're paid by government, by government funds, by tax dollars. So, you know, that that resource needs to be available to those people as well. We serve we serve all of our military, all of our first responders, and then what we're going to call um, high stress helping professions, because there's mm -hmm. a lot of gray area professions, our linemen and our tow truck drivers and okay, yeah. that are in the fray, too, but not quite the same way. Yeah, I get left out of everything. So we're trying to make sure that they're covered as well. Teachers. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's great. That's our focus. And you have written a book to try to get some of the word out, to try to get your story out. I have this book right behind me here. It's, little, <laughs> it's called Never Off Duty. Um, I published that last year. And um, yeah, it's about, I mean, I, it covers a lot of the stuff that we actually just talked about. Um, you know, my background and how I got started in policing and a lot of the experiences that were unique to me as a police officer, but a lot of the experiences that are sort of shared generally amongst, you know, law enforcement officers as a collective. Um, and then of course I talk about the LeBron James video and, you know, how that went viral in the aftermath of that and how, you know, just, it was an insane ride after that video was posted for sure. And, um, you know, I talk about how my life has changed, you know, in, in, in many ways went from police officer to police advocate, um, you know, I've got a nonprofit uh, foundation called the uh, the Blue Lives Foundation, and it's um, it's set up in a in a similar fashion. Um, but it's it I set it up to benefit police officers who find themselves in situations similar to what I went through. Um, you know, if you find yourself displaced by the system, you know your department doesn't have your back. The media is coming after you. The cancel culture mob is coming after you. You know, whatever the case is, and um, and if you haven't, you know, broken the law or violated someone's rights or something like that, then, you know, the Blue Lives Foundation can can help those officers. They will also help officers, families who are killed in the line of duty. And we have a similar goal to yours. It's like this mental health crisis is an actual crisis and it needs to be addressed. And so that's another one of our um, focuses is is that mental health issue. Yes. I love that your that your organization is a little bit unique and that you have added I mean there's a million organizations that are like ooh let's stop suicide but mm -hmm. so many of the organizations out there aren't willing to say what are you doing to stop suicide yeah. oh we bring awareness okay what are you doing to stop mm -hmm. suicide yeah. just talking about it isn't enough anymore yeah. what are you doing to create change what are you doing to get underneath these systems what are you doing to tear down these structures that are devaluing the lives of our first responders? It takes yes. more than t-shirts and talk. Right. Yeah. You know, and I'm, and I've told people this before and, you know, I probably don't say it enough, but you know, I'm, I'm willing to travel to go meet with an officer who is in some sort of crisis and say, Hey, I've been there. I've been through it. You know, let's talk about it. You know, if you're willing to talk to me, I'll share my experience and how I got through it. And hopefully that will help them. Um, figure out how to navigate their particular issue. And again, with my, with my, you know, nonprofit, um, hopefully we can provide funds to, well, we will be able to provide funds for officers. You know, if, if their insurance doesn't cover it, or if they don't have an employee assistance program and they're just strapped for cash and, and, you know, and the only way they can get mental health help 
is is by you know paying for it out of their own pockets then we'll we'll foot the bill for that you know so and that's again that's uh something that has to be done we we like you said we can't just keep ignoring this issue and just going through officers like again like they're robots off an assembly line because they're not they're officers who have families they have people who love them and people who they love and they need to be around for those people you know like you said in your introduction most importantly i'm a father of a daughter and that is the most important thing and that's another thing that i stress to police officers all the time is that nothing is more important than your family especially police work don't sacrifice your relationship with your husband with your wife with your kids for the sake of this job because it will not give you that time back it will not mend those relationships for you if you allow this job to completely consume you it'll tear you apart it'll tear your family apart it'll ruin your relationships with your friends and other loved ones so keep keep an eye on what's important right family members relationships police work can come second or third but you got to take care of yourself so that you can take care of your loved ones where can people get a hold of you um, they can go to my website, the Blue Lives, bluelivesfoundation.org. That's where they can order my book there, and they can also donate to the uh, to the nonprofit. Um, I'm on TikTok as Officer Nate 1.0, and I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at the Officer Nate, or uh, it's Officer Nate on YouTube, the Officer Nate on on Instagram. So, Perfect. yeah. Anything else you would want to leave our folks with? You know, I would say as, as much as, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of armchair quarterbacks out there. And I've noticed that a, a lot, especially on, you know, on social media. You get a lot of people because there's a lot of videos floating around of police use of force. And these so-called auditors of, you know, police activity, you know, they're the ones that go around with their cameras and try to try to trip up officers violating their First Amendment rights or Fourth Amendment rights or, you know, whatever the case is. But I would say if if you're if you're overly critical of police and but you don't really have any real world experience with officers like, you know, maybe you've been pulled over a time or two, but that doesn't that doesn't make you an expert on policing by any means. Go on a ride along with an with an officer. Go fill out the form. Go get your background check done and actually go ride along and see what it's like for these officers. See what they have to deal with on a daily basis. See how difficult members of the public can be. Um, to these officers, how difficult they can be to be dealt with. And um, yeah, just get a taste of what it's like in the, in the day in the life of a police officer. And, you know, then maybe your, your perspective on police work and police officers in general will change and you won't be so overly critical of these people who, again, make tremendous sacrifices in order to do the job. Or go to a memorial. Yeah. Go to a memorial and watch a five-year-old who just lost her dad yeah. cry in her mother's arms. Yeah. Go to a memorial and watch these folks, watch their fellow officers trying so hard not to cry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just and once be there for the aftermath. Just once be there to see the see that they are human, to see that they have a family, to see the emptiness that's left when they're lost because they're not a statistic they're not a number mm -hmm. they're mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and friends absolutely and 
you know, when you see <clears throat> this is the, this is an issue with mainstream media is because, again, they want sensationalized news because they want ratings and they want people to react emotionally to their to their stories. And the only time they're ever going to report on police work is when they can when they can report on a police use of force and spin it in a way that's going to, you know, invoke outrage in the public. And usually that means painting the officer in a bad light and making it seem like he wasn't justified in his use of force. But before you have a knee jerk reaction to those news stories, look at it objectively, do some research because typically these stories come out seconds or minutes after the incident occurs and you don't have all of the information. It's taken completely out of context in the, in the news story. So before you make a snap judgment on these officers that are involved, do your research, go talk to somebody who's been in law enforcement and reach out to another cop, reach out to somebody who, who knows something about this and try to be objective in rendering judgment against these officers because the court of public opinion, it shouldn't matter, but it does in some cases. Um, when, especially when we have, you know, the last couple of years, like 2020, 2021 were terrible years for police officers, but in the age of social media, um, with so many people sharing their opinions online, I think it's important for, for people to really do their homework and dig into these if you're going to comment on it, you know, if you're going to make a video about it, if you're going to do a podcast on it, you have to get all of the information. You can't just you can't leave out the context that would essentially um, be exculpatory for the officer. So do your homework before you judge these guys. And know that that 15 second clip that you saw is only one piece of hours. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literal hours of, of video footage. Yeah. Yep, and that's again, that's a tactic of of well, you know, I I'm going to say the left because typically the the anti-police sentiment comes from the left. And that's what they'll do. You know, they'll they'll take a video out of context, like you said, they'll take 10-15 seconds of a clip, you know, that that would make the officer look bad in and of itself and again, leave out the context and leave out the rest of the video that would that would paint the entire picture that, you know, a normal civilian citizen joe joe average joe could look at this video and go oh okay well this makes much more sense you know this explains why the officer did what he did so yeah you're absolutely right well, thank you so much for being here with us today and i know that you've had some amazing things to say that will make people think a little bit deeper and hopefully some of our viewers will reach out to you yeah for sure Absolutely. Um, you know, and if they, uh, you know, and, and I'm not just trying to push my book, you know, I'm not trying to be a salesman, but uh, my book covers a lot of the topics that we that we covered today on your show. And um, it's everything that you don't know about police work, but you probably want to and things that are things that um, officers are scared to talk about for fear of retribution, some sort of punishment from their agency. So if you want to if you want to glimpse into what you know the reality of police work is like, you know, you can read Never Off Duty and get a pretty good idea. Thank you so much. Well, thanks Krista. I I had fun today. Me too. Thank you guys so much for being here with us today. Please do reach out, uh follow follow on his TikTok, follow on his social media check out his nonprofit organization and definitely, definitely get that book because you all need, you know, you need that in your first responders library. And 
follow our Facebook too, because this week there's a ton of new things happening. We have our new canine going to training. We have uh, started our free Tuesday night peer support group coaching um, Zooms. Those will be available to you guys at 10 a.m. Central Time on Tuesdays and at 5 p.m. Central Time on Tuesdays. And then Life on Fire coaching will follow at 6 o'clock on Tuesdays. So you guys, those resources are there for you. They are complimentary, free of charge. Uh, nothing comes out. Totally confidential. You can have your cameras on or off. Our meetings are not recorded. So you know that you, that you are always safe. Um, if you prefer private and you just want to talk to me one-on-one, you know I am always available. Just message me and I will get you that link to get with me. Uh, access should never be a reason that you guys don't get what you need, that you can't get the tools and resources on board to have the life on fire that you desire and to overcome those challenges of your high-stress career. So please do, no matter what's happening, reach out. I know almost every single one of my guests, Officer Nate included, has offered up, if you're in trouble, call me, connect with me, I will talk to you, I will come to you. So we are all here for you. Just know you never have to fight alone. <laughs>